training, mindset, integrity, incremental improvement. What can you do better today? Start right here with the Pendola Project. Hey guys, Matt Pendola with the Pendola Project. Today we are talking about are unicorns real? And this, of course, means that there are certain people, athletes maybe, or even situations that we look towards or look up towards, and we want to be able to achieve certain things for ourselves and even our families. We want it to fit, though, with our lifestyle. We want it to be something that we can do possibly for the long term, sometimes for the short term even, but how do we get to these goals and why? So we're creating a plan, but those plans can be overwhelming at times. I encourage a six-day plan initially and just allowing yourself time to adapt moving into a six-week plan and eventually a six-month plan. At that point, there can be times when we decide to pivot and even go towards completely different goals, new goals, or just rinse and repeat, right? So we don't need to complicate things, we can keep things simple on understanding what we are trying to achieve from the beginning, but then having a process where we can re-educate ourselves and even just reevaluate what we really want. Those things can constantly change. So starting off with a six day plan where we can actually find a little bit more about ourselves and if it fits with our life first and then start to introduce more and more of the actual long-term plan into our lifestyle is key. So today we are comparing ourselves to ourselves, not to those one in a million or billion unicorns out there. Hope you enjoy. Hey guys, today we are talking about are unicorns real? And really what I mean by that, we have certain expectations, I think, of ourselves and we place certain goals for ourselves so we have something to reach for, something to get our bodies moving or get our challenges in. And those are good things. But I want to make sure when I look at a goal of mine that I'm realistic about what that goal is going to be. And oftentimes talking to people, I realized that maybe they are comparing themselves to others. And especially when it comes to the elites, that person with the eight pack abs that just has remarkably low body fat year around and they don't necessarily store as much body fat in that midsection as the other millions of people typically do, or that Olympian who can run a sub two hour marathon because they have legs and lungs. And of course the, the training to complement that, but they're still one in a billion even and those are the type of things that I like to look at first. It, are those type of influencers or are those type of people that are a unicorn that are just so rare to find, are, are they realistic for us to look towards? And most of the time, I would say it's great to get motivated and even to utilize some of the things that are working for them, but still keep in mind that it's gotta work for you. When you say the unicorn analogy, 
and I know it's because we just watched this this weekend, but the first person that comes to my mind is Alex Honnold, who free climbed uh, El Cap, was that three years ago? And it's just been going on and on in my head, just how amazing that guy is. And to me, that he's like the definition of a unicorn. And I'm not even a rock climber. I've never even rock climbed. But to me, I mean, so inspiring. And when you brought this subject up, that's honestly the first image that came to my mind was him climbing that incredible face of rock that just seemed impossible. Yeah, I'm by no means am I an expert in rock climbing. I'm not even really a, a fan in, in the sense where I would know who this guy was if he never accomplished this uh, task of, of climbing El Capitan without uh, any ropes, right? So it was freestyle. And most of you have probably heard of the documentary. Definitely worth checking out, by the way. That was an amazing... We were... Our hands were sweating just watching the documentary. And we already knew by this point that he lived right he's not he's gonna make it to the top and you still are so nervous for him and holding your breath almost but when I just noticed a couple things in that documentary the size of his hands for one I would say that it was very atypical um, and I would I wondered how much of that was just his whole life training and how much of that was genetic even but then of course his his mindset and they had actually done an MRI and looked at some specific things with him. One, uh, what uh, they kind of found is his sense of urgency or reasoning is a little bit different than ours. He just doesn't get scared the same way we do, or he just even just deems excitement and nervousness differently than we do. So it's not that he doesn't fear things, but it seemed like it took a lot more for him to even get um, sort of that that fear that you and I would normally have instantaneously wouldn't even phase him. It would have to be at a much, much higher level to get that level of excitement from him. Yeah, I noticed that really the only time he smiled in that whole <laughs> documentary was when he was either talking about the climb that he was going to do or when he was actually climbing. He just, you know, he didn't have any outside expectations about what he was doing. He was doing this solely for him and he knew that he needed to do this. And I just thought that was so powerful that he didn't care what anybody else was doing or thinking about what he was doing. He just, this was his goal. This is what he wanted and he made it happen. I agree. And it has, to me, such a great example because it doesn't matter what sport you're into or who you look up to. When you look at an accomplishment like this, especially if you check out that documentary, I think you end up putting your mind into a different place. Like, wow, there is so much more that we can accomplish if we decide that we're going to have that type of mindset. And then from there, what kind of a unicorn really is he? He's he's probably, I mean, he's the only guy who's ever been able to do this. So he is about the most unique unicorn ever. So even if you are able to have the attributes to do these things, are you willing to cultivate that throughout your entire life? Because this took him a lifetime and eight years of preparation to actually do it. That's commitment. Yeah, as far as a goal and bringing this to like the realistic side of, of planning a goal, I mean, again, yeah, in that eight years, 
of him practice over and over. I mean, there was one section where he talked, literally, he went through a sequence of where he would place his left hand, where he'd place his right hand, then he would come under with his left foot and then his right foot would go here. I mean, he had it so meticulously thought out and planned every step. And it's just, I mean, I can't even imagine the dedication that went into that process. The learning log is what you're referring to there, where he was actually reading back very specific and meticulous steps he took to be able to get that freestyle climb. But what was really interesting to me is his buddy who helped him with the training, who was, I don't know, the second best, you know, climber of all time. He was just amazed at the differences with with Alex and even some of the nuances. Like, for example, he didn't really write anything like emotionally in his journal. It was all just pretty much facts and just things he needed to know to be able to climb better. Now, I know for me and most of my athletes, that actually wouldn't work super well. I want to actually write a lot more about how things are affecting me emotionally, not just physically or mechanically. So to bring it back down a little bit from that unicorn to a more, you know, normal, quote unquote, normal person, focusing on goals, how do we, how do we even start that? What's the first step of of a goal? You know, how do you, how do you even begin? Yeah. So asking yourself, what is your why? And we've, we've covered that in our podcast many times, ultimately just what kind of legacy do you want to live? And That is overwhelming. So the reason why we're talking about keeping it simple, having a six-day plan initially would be, to me, a lot more successful for most people. You can plan in pencil the next six days without feeling like you're over committing or overdoing it or feeling overwhelmed. And going through that with a learning log in mind at the end of that six days, sort of resetting and reevaluating what that next week is going to look like. And I think that there's a couple things here that, that I feel like can be very successful if people are patient with their process. For one, remember to fail forward. So the idea that you're going to write every day for the first six days when you haven't been writing anything at all and you're learning long probably not realistic. You're probably going to miss a few days or maybe not log at all, but you are getting out the door and you are putting in some time and that is a win. But you realize that next week you probably have to start to at least attempt to log a little bit. So it's in baby steps. And that's why I say do that for six days and then even push that reset button. Do it again, do it again until you feel like you're controlling that part, then you can maybe get into a six week plan. Yeah, six days is extremely reasonable. But like you said, even if you're thinking, well, I I haven't even done that for one day. So but even the thought of saying, okay, I'm going to plan this six days, and that's my goal. And as you said, if you don't necessarily write every single day for that six days, it does get your mind thinking about that. So you're more likely to stick to some sort of plan if you know, like, okay, I, I just have to do this for six days. And and I can, I can definitely at least start with that. Yeah. And ultimately, when you go through that first week, that first six days, and as I said, I almost expect that you're going to have some uh, setbacks. And 
instead of being disappointed in yourself, say, yeah, this is actually a part of my plan. I knew I expected this to, uh, you know, creating some changes is not easy, some new habits, it's not easy. So I knew that this was going to challenge me in these ways. I need to do these three things and I'm doing better at these things and maybe focusing on the one thing that you can really accomplish and do better for that next day or that next week and just keep incrementally adding to your plan. And when you feel like you've gotten that down pretty well and you have six weeks where you've hit a pretty good stride, then I think you're looking at in six months or within six months of your original plan, what do you want to do with that? And I, I say it in that order because a lot of times I'm hearing the why from people, what they want to accomplish, what they think is going to take six weeks, oftentimes takes six months. And it's because in part, you have to be able to give yourself the patience phase, I call it, where you're actually getting new habits installed into your lifestyle that you might have had for the last 20, 30 years. So being realistic that it takes a little bit of time, but once you do get to that, now you have a solid six month plan that you're much, much more likely to be able to stick with. And I'm a planner by nature, but to be honest, I don't think I've ever had a six-month plan written out myself. I haven't sat down and said, okay, in six months. I visualize, and I and in my head, I know what I want to do in six months. But to actually write it down um, is probably a whole different experience. So um, I've had it written for me, like when I did the black belt test. That was a plan of six months, but I knew it was already given to me as here's your program, and this is what you need to do. So I think it's entirely different when you are the one actually putting the ideas onto the paper. Yeah, I think that when it comes to a six-month plan, to be clear, a lot of times when I'm programming for athletes, and you've done this yourself as a coach, so think that way, it's a periodization that you're setting up but it's again, it's it's planned in pencil, but it is going to still be more broad strokes. I mean, you just want to know that in the next six weeks, for example, you're going to uh, work on your progression for strength. The following six weeks, you start to maybe get more into your power work. And then, of course, tapering for, let's say, a major competition or goal that way. So those are broad strokes. You don't necessarily have down what the specifics are going to be in that six-month plan until you get to maybe a couple or a few weeks out where you have better ideas of where you're really at then. Yeah, I like the, the plan in pencil because, like you said, a six-month, when you think ahead six months, it is daunting to to try to plan everything that's going to happen in that time. So planning in pencil, like you say, you can go back and make changes and grow through that six month period, because who knows what six months is going to bring. And in, in that six month, what, what your lifestyle changes are going to happen and family and friends and who knows. I mean, there's so many things that we deal with that change on a daily basis sometimes. So yeah, the idea that it, it's a little comforting, I think, to me to say, even though I am a planner and I like to know what's happening, it's okay if something changes. Yeah, because when I'm, let's say, I'm going to give this example about a six-week plan towards North Face, okay, towards a trail race that I did. And in that 
plan, my initial thought was that I was going to do 1K repeats, okay, so to work on my VO2. And that plan was okay. It was good to to have in my notes that I wanted to get towards that progression. But then when I got there, I, I actually completely adapted a new system that I ended up calling Zatu's, which was just basically to be able to work hard and being comfortable, being uncomfortable in these zones for more of a fartlek style of training, which brought more fun into it for me. And so that was part one. Part two is that I never focus on miles. I, I try to get in more minutes in my mind of what I'm doing. And I had a buddy of mine, he was really stuck on his watch. So even though he was doing a lot of the running that he should be, he was looking at X amount of miles and running in circles around the building until he could get to that X amount of miles he was supposed to be doing that day. And that for me would never work if it works for you. But I just simply think that if I'm getting in the quality I need to get in, there's certain days where maybe I'm going to get in a set or two less than I planned on or a mile or two less than I planned on. But maybe with my minutes, I'm going to do a little bit more walking or power walking. So not just saying it's all easy, but I may decide that I'm going to put in some different work and still get in the volume without necessarily getting X amount of miles for that day. So when it comes to that, what you said before, does it work for you? How how do you, you know, can you elaborate? Does it work for you as can mean many things. How do you kind of narrow that focus down and really answer that question? Yeah. So I think coming back to the unicorn conversation, if you have a friend that's accomplished um, a, a competition or a time, or maybe it's something more towards weight loss, something that you feel like you want to be able to accomplish too, their rate of improvement may be different than yours, but that's not to say that you're not going to get there too. And you may even get there the same or sooner than that other person if you follow your own uh, mindset and you're listening to your gut and you're really following tactics that, that you can tell are working for you, not necessarily doing the same exact steps that somebody else used because, again, we are all different. Does that make sense? Yeah, it definitely does. Um, I, f I would like to say that as an adult, I do that less, <laughs> compare myself less than I did, you know, in those some of those years of adolescence and teenagehood where you're constantly worrying and comparing what everyone else is doing. And um, I mean, I think it has lessened, but yeah, I still have to keep that in check a little bit that I am my own person and I'm not going to do it the same way that that person is is going to do it. And that's okay. Yeah, it reminds me when I was doing the Yasso 800s, which for the runners out there doing marathons especially, they'll know that workout. And when I was younger, I did that with all the, uh, the same sort of intensity and mindset that the athletes that were my peers, I guess you would say at the time, they were a little bit faster than me, did it with, and they were sub-220 marathoners. And so I just got it in my head, okay, I'm going to do sub-two 
minutes and 20 seconds per 800. I'm going to stick with this plan. I'm going to stick with the group. Then I'm going to be able to break my 220 for the marathon. And that worked for some, but that style didn't work for me. As I started to take more of an individual approach to goals like I have now, that's where I've really been able to see that even backing off on some of my volume or even taking an uncharacteristic two or three day mini break in my training progressions has actually allowed me to get faster. So very proud of the fact that at North Face, I ended up running about 10 minutes faster this last year than I did years and years before when I was younger. And I actually thought that I was in better shape then. So it just goes to, to show me that the individual things that mean that I'm going to listen to how my body is recovering and how and what I need to improve matter. Yeah. And the, the question of compared to what you kind of reverse that in a way where usually it's, um, I'll have older clients that say, gosh, well, 20 years ago, I could do this, this, and this. And now, you know, I can't, I can't do it. And it's like, well, yeah, compared to when you were, I mean, you're comparing your, to your former self and you have to, even though you're, still doing the same movements, it's going to be a little bit different. And luckily for you, Matt, in that, in that example, you actually improved your time as you got older. So it can go both ways. You can compare yourself in a positive aspect too. Yeah. And compared to what it can mean many different things, but I'd like to also just cover the idea about what I can do now versus what I could do before when I was younger. Obviously, I'm not going to beat my 10,000 meter PR because I was training all the time for that. And I was obviously just, I had age on my side back then. I'm not going to beat that time for speed. But what I have on my side now is experience. And I'm a better tactical runner than I used to be, but mainly I'm just plain stronger. In the last 20 years, learning what we have about the body and strength and progressions has allowed me to continue to get stronger in my own running and really look forward to that mountain running. But with the idea that I'm not going to be faster than I used to be, but I can be stronger. And so actually looking towards some of these ultra races even that I never thought I would enjoy doing and realizing that, wow, here's maybe a new set of goals in front of me. I always thought that doing something like an ultra race, a 50K, a 50 miler, a 100K, a 100 miler even, that these would be just terrible things to train for. But now seeing what I have in my experience and my background and be able to use that and do it the right way it, it may be an exciting new challenge for me. And I, I think of it that way because when I look at these documentaries of these people who have done these like Western States 100, which is right in our backyard, I question myself, could I do that? And I think that's what gets me excited is, geez, I don't know for sure, but I do know that I could train for it. And this is something that could come, become a not only a new PR, but something that I could probably arguably do better now than I could have 20 years ago. Well, yeah, it's a new it's a new goal for you, and it'll be exciting to see your plan and your process as you train for that, and then obviously the end result of the actual 100 mile race. And I think it's just another example of of a new goal and how you don't get complacent or or bored with the current what you're currently doing. It's always nice to have something to look forward to. 
Yeah, the other thing that I think is really important to cover today is does your goal, does the plan fit with your lifestyle? So considering the big three, which is your family, your fitness, and your fortune, and then to me, it's it's going to be in that order. Family's first, and then your health, and then your career, in other words. And d- does your goal fit with those things? Because as I just mentioned about running, say, a 100-miler, I would I would love to challenge myself and, and do something like that now, but that's not going to fit just yet, that type of training, into my lifestyle right now, but it is something I can plan for in the future. But just knowing that instead of setting myself up to try to go for something like that when there's just no way I can put enough time in to be satisfied with, with the results. I remember, I think you've mentioned this before on a podcast, but when you were, when Mia was young, 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 you know, before she was two and you were training for, you were really getting into duathlons and you realized at one point that, oh my gosh, I'm spending so much time training. And when I'm not training, I'm working. And when I'm not training or working, I'm just so tired. I don't have the energy to really give the attention to Mia that she deserves. And that kind of is what changed that for you. And so that's a perfect example of how your lifestyle needs to dictate what your goal could be or should be. Oh, yeah. that's I love that you brought that up because it does remind me too of going back to that six-day, six-week type of planning. I may decide that I'm going to do something like this and just try the first week, see the impact that has on not just my my body, but my life and the things that are surrounding it and then give it another six days and then maybe go into a six-week plan. And during that six-week plan, I may realize that going for, say, a 50K race, which is going to be a lot shorter than a 100-mile race, is going to be more realistic, and I can just try to be faster at that, at least initially. So, you know, but then again, maybe the, the next six weeks, I realize that my body is getting really strong. And even though I'm not going to be able to put in as much time as I would optimally want, maybe I don't need as much time as I, I, I thought because I'm making progress that I didn't see coming. And now I can maybe enter a 100K race instead of the the 50K, which would be about 62 miles instead of 100 miles. So, you know, again, those are just things that I think can change and do change. And you just have to decide whether or not it's working for you and make those decisions off of what your lifestyle is like and whether or not it is realistic to, to take these kind of goals on in the first place, which I think that's just such an important thing that we choose goals that are going to set us up for success. All too often, we didn't have a, we didn't have a shot at finishing a goal that we set out for ourselves. The the obvious thing that comes to my mind is when I talk to uh, people that are trying to get an eight pack, and I've talked about this before, but eight packs uh, versus six pack is genetic. So if you are not, if your body doesn't have the uh, the ability to be able to get that 
that um, that eight pack look because you simply don't have that fibrous connection, that extra connection that actually cuts the six pack look into an eight pack at a certain body fat or a lower body fat. It's never going to happen. Six packs, eight packs can be the same exact body fat level, just the difference of uh, you know whether or not you have additional connective tissue there or not. Yeah, it's, it is. I think it yeah, gets back to the comparing yourself to, to others and just remembering that you are your own person and it's not going to be the same journey for you. So whether or not we're going to survive or thrive, that's what we want to be able to cover here. And are you adapting? So if I'm adapting to a strength program, my body's feeling stronger that's fantastic. Maybe for the first six weeks, I feel that. Or maybe the first six weeks are really tough on my body, but I do, I'm excited about still getting back into the gym the next day or, or a couple of days later because I enjoy the challenge and I can see the potential coming. And that's the question I want to ask myself is, am I excited about doing the program? Is it fun still, though? And I do believe that we adapt to the stresses we put on in our bodies and our minds, for that matter. But as as long as we are doing it incrementally and also that we're doing it at a progression, we're not trying to get it all at once. So there's a difference between uh, that sort of adaption and just shocking our system into you know, failure. Yeah, mental adaption, too. I mean, I find that that's how I kind of know I need to switch some things up when I start getting bored and, and I've been doing the same program or the same thing for, you know, too long. And I find that it's not fun anymore and I'm not excited to be doing this. And then I say, okay, I've kind of stopped adapting mentally at this point, you know? So even if I'm still physically seeing some good results, it's okay to still switch things up because I do need to take care of the, the mental side of those things and still make it fun and enjoyable. Or I don't really find much of a point after that, if it becomes a, a, a more of a job than, than something I should be really enjoying. Yeah. So even when we're on a six month plan for a goal, I think that you want to rinse and repeat and decide whether or not you're going to potentially pivot. Sometimes pivoting is the best thing that you can do. And what I mean by that is maybe you've been, for example, running every day, but you have some knee pain. And right now, the best thing for you might be able to get into the pool or to work on more mechanical loading in the gym, but really take time off of the running. And it amazes me how often people think they're just going to lose so much because they stop doing something like their running plan for a few days, whereas really it could really reboot them and re-energize them and allow those tissues to heal, but also just our you know, give our minds a reboot. Sometimes I think that that's absolutely crucial. Or after you get done and you accomplish a goal, are you going to decide to be able to compete at a more elite level? Are you going to try to run that marathon faster or are you going to pivot to a completely new goal? Like I'm going to try taking jujitsu up now instead and see how that goes. Yeah. I like the idea of, well, both of those rinse and repeat and pivot. I think you can use both of those concepts, um, always, you know, and 
like I, I will rinse and repeat, but then, yeah, sometimes it is nice to just pivot and say, okay, I'm, I'm going to just kind of try something new now. I think it's exciting. Yeah. So relative versus realistic roots. So the next thing I want to talk about, and the first thing in, in training, uh, a common question that I get is just, you know, how do I start? I want to lose weight or I just want to feel better. I want to improve my health and, and where do I start? And I used to always talk about nutrition first. I, I just thought that made more sense that if you're putting better fuel into your body, if you're losing the weight um, because you're taking in less calories in, than, than, um, than you're than you were before. Thank you. Yeah. I don't know why. I'm like, <laughs> That's okay. Um, then, you know, I thought that would make more sense. And for some people it does. And certainly there are, I, nobody listening to the, the this podcast most likely in the situation where they, they can't, um, they can't utilize these concepts in one way or another, but you may decide that improving your nutrition right now is the best thing for you. And, and if that is great, fantastic. But I think that a lot of people, it becomes um, a bit harder for them to both try to eat less and move more at the same time. I think that's a mistake for most people. So what I mean by that is first start moving more and nothing to the extremes. I'm not talking about zero to a hundred. I'm saying usually grab a step counter, start to realize how many steps you're averaging in a day. I'll say to somebody, give me your average three days and don't change anything right now because we won't have an accurate set point. Or maybe these days, a lot of people do have those step counters. Now, do I like step counters overall? No, because I think that people are influence the wrong way. They think that they're burning more calories than they are, that they're taking potentially more steps or less for that matter. But it just gives you an idea and a set point. And then from there, you can decide that you're going to move just a little bit more. So getting out the door for an extra five to 10 to 15 minutes a day and doing that every day, but not really changing much else until you're used to that. And then you can think more about taking in less calories, just not trying to do it all at once would be my point there. Yeah. I just got a great text this morning, actually, from our good friend and a uh, longtime client, Bill Vickers, who's just so dear to my heart. And, um, you know, he's been at home, obviously, for the last two months almost since we've been closed down. And I know it's a bit challenging for him to kind of, I don't want to say find the motivation, but in a way, you know, he's dealt with some, some challenges and getting out walking. And it just, I had the biggest smile on my face. I got this text from him this morning telling me that he had listened to our podcast about the home workout. So he has been doing his home workouts. He's got his push-ups going and his squats and his step-ups and even has a bucket that he's going to put some some rocks in to make some weights. And, you know, he was very honest. He said, I only did one set of everything and I was really tired, but I'm going to try for two or three as the next, as these weeks progress. And I just thought that's such a great um, mental attitude to have that, yeah, I only did one set today, but that's okay because I'm moving more and I'm making progress. And I just made me so happy to hear that. It made me happy too. We love you, Bill. So looking at whether or not the mechanical process is a factor for you, that's that's another super important thing to take note of in your training. And what I mean by that, let's say that you are starting a, a program where your knee starts to hurt a lot. 
what is happening there you may have gone into that program too quickly or too much too soon. Maybe you do have a sort of collapse, right? In your So we kind of refer to it as knee not in when you're squatting, for example, where you want to keep your knee in a good congruent position to where you're not putting undue stress on your joint. And oftentimes it's the glute med in that case that is helping as an auxiliary support system, or in other words, to sort of back up your primary movers. And it's got, it, you need to spend a little bit of time and attention on that area. So doing uh, things like um, side bridges, um, you know, mini monster walks in the frontal plane, clamshells, froggers, and we could go on and on, but these type of movements are and should be a staple in somebody's training first and foremost, and then continuing with these things and putting them into your program enough that you can maintain the stability through the glute med for that knee. So sometimes mechanical monitoring is very necessary, especially when you're starting a more volume or more density and just looking at whether or not you're ready for that next step of let's say going on a walking program around your neighborhood to hiking to finally getting to the top of the mountain to then deciding that you're going to run those mountains are you ready for that next progression have you put in that time to properly load yeah mechanical monitoring to me is listening to your body and just being aware of what is this affecting me negatively? Is it affecting me positively? How do I feel? And maybe you need to do that every single day. And as you're going through your program and deciding what feels good and what doesn't. So I, I like the mechanical monitoring, but for a more basic, I guess, idea of is just listening to your body to me. Yeah. And listening to your body, that brings us right into with going with your gut. So if we are counting our calories, for example, and monitoring that way, some people do like that. So again, if it works for you, but similar to following your watch and seeing how many calories you're burning, which that's a whole nother podcast we could talk about that I don't believe that we're generally getting accurate information there for the most part. We are just we're getting information we can use. I just don't believe it's always necessarily so accurate and it can fool us into thinking we can eat more than we should be or that there's more activity that we even need to do. Sometimes it can be off in the other direction too. So looking at calories every day is to me super tedious. Once in a while, I think we could do it just to see where our set point is or yeah i'm just kind of interested how many calories am i taking in right now but listening to my gut is a really a staple for for me without having to count the calories and i follow some simple guidelines to that process but ultimately i know that when i'm feeling good and i'm moving well and I don't have the highs and lows and dips, those type of things in my energy system, I'm doing pretty well. And I can make small changes from there. 
Yeah, I failed miserably at my task a few weeks ago that we were going to track our nutrition for a week. And I think I ended up with Monday, Tuesday, and then I just kind of stopped. And even Mia was getting on me like, Mom, you got to write it down. You look at that on the fridge. You didn't fill out Wednesday or anything. And by then it was Friday and I was like, oh, I can't. I'm not going to remember what I ate three days ago, but I do know that I felt great. So I am definitely more of a go with your gut person than than writing everything down it was like you said very tedious and I just I did not enjoy it honestly so I probably won't try that again (laughs) yeah and listen I don't mind doing things like that to uh, be able to help our listeners or our clients out a little bit more so we can give them maybe some feedback about what works for us and yeah on average I take in this many calories when I'm you know, this active and, but in general, I, I think that you you need to be able to go off your gut. And even though a lot of people do like to look at calories, it's super hard to actually be accurate with the calories that you're, you're counting if you're doing that. And in some cases, extreme cases, but counting calories, I think can, can lead to some disorders. And I, I don't love that idea either. It should always be in that just sort of that healthy mindset approach, because I, I will tell you, there are some people out there that are going to certainly need more calories than me doing the same exact things I'm doing. And then for me, I may need less calories or more calories, depending on even where I'm at in my training life. So for example, just refeeding would be something that I would do after I've been competing, after my championship season's over. And what I mean by that, like in December, I stopped training and competing, but I did start to refeed. In other words, getting a surplus of calories intentionally because my body fat had been pretty low for a fair amount of my training time for a good couple months leading into my main race. And at a certain point, I want to be able to give my body a chance to reboot even because I I know that my optimal racing weight is lower in body fat, but not something that I necessarily want to try to keep year round. So how do we bridge the, the six weeks or excuse me, six days to six weeks into that you know, six months to a year plan? How do you kind of make that congruent? How do you go for that next, you know, six month plan? Yeah. So don't try to multitask too much is that that's the, the first thing. I don't believe that we can multitask. I mean, studies have shown us pretty clearly that we actually cannot multitask. It's just some people can handle more things at once, but it doesn't mean they're doing anything as optimally as they could be. And I think the same thing goes for our bodies and our, and our training. So even getting back to, um, you know, the, the old adage of, uh, thermodynamics of you want to lose weight when you're going to eat, eat less and move more, you're doing those things at the same time. That's to me, multitasking. Um, you can do one and, and then reintroduce some, uh, some things so that it's more incremental. So eventually you are eating, um, less and moving more, but you gave your body a chance to adapt. And again, our bodies are amazing at adaption. So when I was talking about refeeding earlier, even when I'm going to take in extra calories, it's not like I'm going from 2000 to 
3,000 calories all at once or anything like that. I'm just getting in a little extra than I was before. And I know that because it's in my ritual to have these foods and reintroduce maybe a little bit more as I go. That's something to me that's easy to do. It keeps it simple. And that's another one of my philosophies is keep everything simple. So do I need to write all my calories down? No. Do I need to write every single mile that I do in my program down and commit to those miles no matter what? No. I can keep it to my gut, both physically and mentally. Yeah, the keep it simple, stupid kiss is a great um, thing to keep in mind. And also the 80-20 that we've talked about before as in training, but also with your nutrition or with your goal or anything, really, I think in life, the 80-20 rule works really well across the board. So that way you don't get too overwhelmed. So 80% of the time you're really strict, you're on your, you're on your goal. And then that other 20%, you can kind of, you know, not worry so much about it. Yeah, because really ultimately when I have a connection that I'm making with a client and I understand what their goals are going to be or what they want, I'm always just trying to kind of gear them or influence them towards their best potential, not what I think their best potential would be necessarily or what that unicorn they think of is. I want to move moderately. It doesn't mean that some some people are going to actually make you know quicker progress than others, but moving at the pace that works for your lifestyle, bringing it back to these basics, keeping it simple for not multitasking and, and also just, hey, you want to lose a little bit of weight or even gain a little bit of muscle, let's add a little bit here at a time or take out a little bit there at a time and see what happens there and be patient with that rather than just throwing everything at the wall and seeing what sticks. Yeah. So keep those unicorns in your mind as a motivation and something to look up to, but don't let it overwhelm you and uh, make you think that you have to be exactly like that unicorn that you so admire. So if you guys, if you liked what we were talking about today, please share this episode with your family and friends. We would really appreciate it. Uh, you can visit our website at pendolatraining.com and sign up for our monthly tip newsletter there. And you will also find us on Instagram at Pendola Project. Thank you so much for listening. Yeah, man.